Mark your books to 142 and uh, wrestle off for the Lord's invitation. It's must Jesus bear the cross alone. Tonight we're looking at our third and final lesson from the book of Amos. Looking at some visions and then also we conclude with a promise. As you look at Amos chapter seven through nine, which you find are numerous, we find several visions first off in chapter uh, seven, and then you have uh, the final concluding part, really from chapter seven through up to almost the very end of chapter nine. You have five visions we see there, and then it concludes with really what I call a, a, a glimmer of hope for the future. And many have even said that. Uh, those last few verses is the, or is the only optimistic, you might say, note of the entire book because so much deals with the wickedness and the punishment that will come to those uh, who, have been involved, who have been involved in wickedness. So this evening I want to show what we can learn from God's punishment and His mercy in the days of Amos. And we'll be going through uh, this looking at various sections. Uh, looking at these five visions that will make up chapter 7 through, again, through almost all of chapter 9. We have seen punishment of the wicked over and over again in Amos. However, today we will see that at the end, again, there remains a note of hope for the faithful. The five visions we find begin in chapter 7, verse 1, with the first vision being the vision of the locusts in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. And here the Bible says, Thus the Lord God showed me, Behold, he formed, a locust, he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowings. And so it was, when they had finished eating the grass of the land, that I said, O Lord God, forgive, I pray, O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this, it shall not be, said the Lord. We find here the grass of the fields is what's clearly being threatened here. We realize that when the grass of the fields are threatened, we know that livestock, of course, is going to have a very difficult time uh, feeding. And so we know, as we've seen at other times as well, the locusts are very good at being destructive of, of herbs and of grass and vegetation in general. And we find here that they were going to destroy this. The Bible says, when they had finished eating the grass of the land, that I said, O Lord God, forgive, I pray, all that Jacob may stand, for he is small. And we find, we're going to notice here uh, on a few occasions that the Lord relents. He says in verse 3, So the Lord relented concerning this, it shall not be, said the Lord. So the Lord, we might say there, stops with the eating of the grass by the locusts. That either being that they could have continued on destroying more uh, vegetation, but they relented, as he says there in verse 3. So that's the first of our five visions, is the vision of the locust. The second being the vision of the devouring fire in verses 4 through 6, which is a which seems to be a much more severe judgment than that of the locust, but this time it's again averted by the mercy of God. Looking at verse 4 and following of chapter 7, Thus the Lord God showed me, Behold, the Lord God called for conflict by fire. 
and he consumed the great deep and devoured the territory. Then I said, O Lord God, cease, I pray, O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. So a fire breaks out that threatens to destroy the land. No doubt much of it was destroyed. He says there in verse uh, 4, it consumed the great deep and devoured the territory. And we find again the prayer is made or the uh, uh, plea is made there in verse 5. Oh, that Jacob may stand for he is small. And what happens in verse 6? The Lord relents. He says, this also shall not be, said the Lord God. We notice each time that these visions come to an end, it's because of God's mercy. It's because of God's, uh, you might say, long-suffering towards them that he ceased this devouring fire. He stopped the swarming locusts, as we saw in the first uh, vision. The third vision is the vision of the plumb line that we find here in verses 7 through 9. And this is representing the destruction on the uh, nation of Israel for their idolatry. Looking at verses 7 through 9, this, Thus he showed me, Behold, the Lord stood on the wall, made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And he said, A plumb line. And the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel. I will not pass by them any more. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with the sword against the house, of Jeroboam. And so we find here again this vision showing how they're going to be facing destruction, facing judgment because of their idolatry. He says in verse 9, the high places of Isaac shall be desolate. The high places is reference to places of idolatry. And the sanctuaries of Israel should be laid waste. He says, I will rise the sword against the house of Jeroboam. It's interesting that the eye there makes it seem as if it's God himself who's going to rise up with the sword against them. No doubt he's going to use nations to do this, but he says it's him that's causing, causing this. He says, I will rise with the sword. If we know anything about the Lord, we know when it comes to battles, he is not one who has ever been defeated. And so when he rises with the sword, he's going to carry out his will against them. But then in verses 10 through 17, we have a break between the visions, you might say intermission here, because we have the words of Amaziah and his hostility toward Amos. In Amos chapter 7, verses 10 through 17, we find that Amaziah complains about Amos to Jeroboam. We begin here in verse 10, the Bible says, And Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words, for thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from their own land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, go you seer, flee to the land of Judah, there eat bread, and there prophesy. Now what we find here really, to me, are some very big words for Amaziah, because first he goes to Jeroboam, and he tells Jeroboam that Amos has prophesied about, basically, about his death. And then he says that the land is not able to bear the words of Amos, there in, verse, uh, there in verse 10. In verse 11, he goes to Amos, uh, excuse me, verse 11, he tells those words to Jeroboam about how Amos has said he's going to die by the sword, and how surely Israel will be led away captive from their own land. But then in verse 12, he basically tells, tells Amos to go somewhere else. 
If you're going to be uh, one who prophesies, he says, actually, get up and go somewhere else. Go, you seer, flee the land of Judah, there eat bread, and there prophesy. However, we find that Amos does respond, and I really enjoy his response to uh, Amaziah here. Verse 13, he says, Whenever again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the royal, it is the royal residence. So that is the last part of Amaziah's word towards Amos. Go somewhere else, don't come back here, for this is what the king's sanctuary and is the royal residence. Verse 14, we find Amos responds. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. So basically what he's telling, telling him here is that I wasn't anyone before God told me to go and prophesy. And so he's telling Amaziah, the reason I'm here is because God has sent me. Thereby telling him that when you tell me to leave, you're, telling, you're trying to go against God's will. Because it was God who sent him to, to prophesy. There in verse 15. Verse 16, Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, notice how he reminds him, you say, do not prophesy against Israel, and do not spout against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a harlot in the city. Your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided by survey line. You shall die in a defiled land, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from his own land. What does he say to him? Say to him he says, all these things are going to happen. And what? He says, your wife is going to be like a harlot in the city. Your sons and daughters are going to die by the sword. And your land is going to be divided up and given away. And God's will will still be done. So what we find here is that despite Amaziah telling him to go somewhere else, Amos says, no, I'm not. We're going to keep on doing this because God has sent me to do this. God's will is going to be carried out. And on top of it, your wife and your sons your wife and your sons and daughters are all going to, are going to die. Your wife is going to be looked, at, looked upon as a harlot in the city, and your land is going to be divided up and given away. You'll lose everything, and God's will is still going to be carried out. Nothing changes. Despite how much Amaziah hates Amos and despises his words, that doesn't change anything. God's will is still going to be carried out. As we move into chapter 8, we have the vision of the summer fruit. In Amos chapter 8, looking at verses 1 through 3, Thus the Lord God showed me, Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? So I said, A basket of summer fruit. The Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore, and the songs of the temple shall be welling in, the, shall be welling in that day. Thus said the Lord, My many dead bodies everywhere, they shall be thrown out in silence. What we find here is that this fruit is an illustration showing that they are ripe for judgment. That the time has come for their punishment. He says there in verse, uh, verse 1, in verse 2 rather, he says, The Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel. It w- I will not pass by them anymore. It means he's not going to wait. He's not going to delay. The time has come upon them. Thus, that summer fruit. They are ripe for judgment. The time has come. He says, in the songs of the temple shall be welling in that day. Thus says the Lord God, many dead bodies everywhere, they shall be thrown out in silence. Judgment was coming upon them. The time had come. 
Next we find, if you look here, this isn't a vision, so to speak, but we have here in verses 4 uh, through 14, the time where it, the, the son, of a, son of a nation sets at noon, so to speak. Beginning here in verse 4, Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying, When will the new moon be passed, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath we may trade wheat? Making the ephah small, the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, even to sell the bad wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. So we find here the Lord promises not to forget their sinful works because they will not repent. We find in verse 4, the oppressors are told to hear. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy, that's the oppressors. Verse 5 and 6, examples of their oppression is given. Now they're going to, uh, see, see there in verse 5, when will the new moon be passed, we may sell grain, the Sabbath we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by the sea. Clearly they make their money by being dishonest. Verse 6, that we may buy the poor for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. So they abuse the poor, they sell bad wheat, that is, they're, again, dishonest. In verse 7, what happens? The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. He says, surely I will never forget any of their works. And their works are described there in verses 4 through 6. That they are, no doubt, dishonest and oppressors of the poor and the oppressors of the needy. We next find in verses 8 through 10 that the Lord will remove all joy from them because of what we just talked about. In verses 8 through 10, Shall not the land tremble for this, and everyone mourn who dwells in it? All of it, shall swell like the, all of it shall swell like the river, heave and subside like the river of Egypt. It shall come to pass in that day, thus says, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for, all, for, for, for an only son and his end like a bitter day. What's going to happen? He says they're going to have the worst day imaginable. Judgment is coming upon them. Some reference this idea of the sun going down at noon as being an eclipse. That's possible. It could be possible. God just decided, you know what, the sun stops here today. You're going to have darkness beginning at noon. Anything is possible. The same Lord who called the sun to stand still for all that time period for Joshua can do the same here in the opposite direction as well if he decided to do so. But either way, the sun, he says, goes down at noon. I will darken the earth in broad daylight. And broad daylight means it wasn't like it was going down a few minutes early. At noon, we know, it's the middle of the day. At the time, it should have been the highest in the sky. Well, now it's completely dark. <coughs> in verse 10, he says, I will turn your feast in the morning. So basically, everything that should bring joy turns into lamentation. Feast, bring mourning. Song, lamentation. He says, I'll bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I'll make it like mourning for an only son. Why would he use that phrase? Like mourning for an only son. Well, if you have only one child and you lose that child, how severe is that loss? Now, it will be severe for any child, but if it's your only son or only child, isn't it going to be even worse? And that's the idea, a severe time of mourning. He says, in its end, like a bitter day. 
We find next in verses 11 through 14 that God will send a spiritual famine upon them. They will actually be looking for the word of God, but they will reject it. They will not be able to find it. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. In that day the fair virgins and strong young men shall faint from thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. So what we find here, they're looking for truth, but they're not able to find it. We know that because we find they're still living in sin. They're still calling out to Dan. They're still calling out, as he says here, referring to those who, who are the ways, way of Beersheba, calling out to all these sinful ways of life. They rejected the message. They were looking for it. We might say they were not honestly looking for it. They weren't able to find it. We know those who truly seek the Word of God will be able to find it. They will be able to hear the truth and obey it. But these individuals were still, were still covered in sin. The fifth and final vision is a vision of the sanctuary in chapter 9. In chapter 9, looking at verses 1 through 4, here the Bible says, I saw the Lord standing by the, by the altar, and he said, Strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake, and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away, and he who escapes from them shall not, shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. Verse 4, though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword and it shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. Those are probably some of the most destructive words you'll find the Lord speaking, especially in the Old Testament. Because he is searching out, he is finding those who are living in a way that is in complete opposition to God. It is not the case that they were trying to come back to him and God was just slaying them as they tried to come back. That's not what's happening. What's happening is they're still in idolatry. They're still not coming out of their sin. And what happens, the Bible says here in verse 1 and following, basically there is no escape from it. We find here in verses 1 through 4 that God, no idolater escapes God's wrath. I think about that phrase there in verse 2, though they dig into a hell, that's not being literal hell, obviously, but though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. That's not literal heaven either. What's he talking about? You can go as far down as you possibly can, up as up high as you possibly can. He says, I will find you in both places. We really could summarize this by saying, we read there that last phrase in verse 1 really is enough for us to realize what God is making the point of. He says, And he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. No one was going to get away. No one was going to get away. No one was going to go get off, as we might say, scot-free. God was going to punish them all. 
We find, as we look at verses 5 through 10, that the people will be wiped away. Then the Lord God of hosts, He who torches the earth, and it melts, and all who dwell there mourn. All of it shall swell like the river, and subside like the river of, e river of Egypt. He who builds his layers in the sky, and has found his strata in the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel, says the Lord God? Do not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaptur, and the Syrians from Kerr. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful, are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. There is a beginning of that little bit of hope we were talking about earlier. I will not utterly destroy the house of Israel, says the Lord. For I will surely will command and will, and will sift the house of Israel among all nations. As grain is sifted in a sieve, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say that calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. We have a very clear picture there in verses 8 through 10, don't we? God's going to punish the wicked, but only the wicked. Notice verse, verse uh, 8 there. He says here, he says, he will, I will not early destroy the house of Jacob. Notice verse 9, I will command and will sift the house of Israel. We know what happens when you get put in, you know, maybe... What did you buy? Sometimes some beans or things, you put it in a sifter and you'll sift it out, make sure you get all the stuff out. So you have left is just the beans. Well, what's the idea we find here? Only the faithful remain. All the wicked fall out. Only the faithful remain. And the faithful, he says here in verse 10, the smallest grain shall, uh, he says, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. And notice, He's specific there in verse 10. All the sinners of my people. They're still his people, but what are they? They're sinners. He said, they shall die by a sword. Who say, the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. It's saying the calamity, it cannot harm us. God cannot touch us. Well, they're wrong. God was going to, and we know, he would carry out his will. The righteous will not fall, while the unrighteous most definitely would. The final part of chapter 9, we have this promise of a bright future, verses 11 through 15. In the conclusion, we have, I think, really some small glimmers of hope and some, some reminders throughout the book of Amos. Really, it's not till here at the very end we find some hope for the future. We find in verses 11 through 15 the promise of a brighter future. Looking at verse 11, on that day he says, "I will rise up, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I'll raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old." What's he talking about? He's talking about restoring things and putting them back as they should be. Verse 12, though that they may possess the remnants of Edom. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. The idea of the plowman overtaking the other and the treader of grapes who sows the seed, meaning there's so much, it's, there's an abundance. He says the mountains shall drip with sweet wine. 
and that all the hills shall flow with it. They will, they will be blessed. We find there, he says, the tabernacle David that's been fallen down will be repaired. He says, I'll raise it up from its ruins. And what happens, we find here, is basically is that blessings are going to be restored, but only to the faithful. Because we just saw, back in verses 9 and 10, who was it he was going to sift out? He was going to make sure that all that got the blessings were just the faithful of Israel. Not those individuals who said the calamity will not touch us. No, not them. Only the faithful. Spiritual, spiritual promises are made to those who, who would be obedient. But they're only for the obedient. Looking at verse 14, he says, I'll bring back the captives of my people, Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I'll plant them in their, in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land. I have given them, says the Lord your God. I mean, he's going to place them there, and they're not going to move. And they're going to be prosperous, verse 14. Their future would be quite different if they were to remain faithful. Some lessons for us today. It is only through God's mercy that there is relief. It's seen clearly in Amos that only through God's mercy do people remain. If we look at Amos chapter 7, verse 3, and again verse 6, who was it they relented? It was the Lord. So the Lord relented, verse 3. So the Lord relented concerning this, verse 6. Only through the Lord's mercy do people remain. If we are to enjoy His fellowship and blessings, we must be those who make ourselves right in His sight. To enjoy blessings and fellowship requires repentance where sin is present. Those who are to be punished have nowhere to hide. Those who are to be punished, we get on to the next one, have nowhere to hide. For those who do not wish to humble themselves before God, they will find punishment. We go back to chapter 9, the last part of verse 1. He who flees from them shall not get away, and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. The, the idea there is there's no getting away from punishment when we're not living right with God. So how do we avoid punishment? We come back to God in repentance. We humble ourselves, we confess our wrongs to God, and we make ourselves right in His sight. In the days of Amos, it was seen physically, and no doubt spiritually, that those who were not right in his sight will be punished. The same is the case for man today. We may face hardships because we have decided to neglect God and go, go do things our own way. Many times, as a natural effect, when we start doing things our own way, things get much, much more difficult. The wicked have nowhere to run. The wicked will have a much harder life. So the answer, obviously, is if we want to have a better life, we turn to God. We put our obedient faith in Him. Think about this for a moment. God keeps His word, those of mercy and those of punishment. We saw in chapter, three, chapter 7, He relented twice. We find in chapter 9, for those who have not repented, that He would not rest until they were all punished according to His word. We know as we go back and look at 
the promises that God makes to the faithful, that as long as they are faithful, he will, he will bless them, he will dwell among them, they'll be prosperous, and on and on and on. And he also tells them what's going to happen if they do not remain faithful to him, how they will be punished, how he will come upon them with swift judgment. And so what's happening here during the time of Amos is not a surprise. These individuals knew what was going to take place if they ever departed from God. But yet, that's what happened for, no doubt, many of them. If we are to avoid judgment from God today, if He chooses to punish us in some way, repentance must take place. You know, we may not face what we think is a punishment from God today, but on the day of judgment, there will be no escape. God will take care of those who have gone against His Word. No doubt we can see ways God is punishing the wicked still today. Sometimes... We get what we deserve as a nation. We get what we deserve as a people. But we're ever going to have a better life and a life that's less, you might say, drama-filled. It's going to require us coming back to God. This evening, as you think about the lessons we've seen from Amos, not just tonight, but over the last few weeks, we have seen very clearly that God does not tolerate wickedness. He doesn't tolerate a false idea of worship. He doesn't tolerate a phony return to Him. He will only accept genuine repentance. And every time man repents, as we saw the last of chapter 9, what does God do? He makes a promise that they will be blessed, they will be safe, and that He will provide for them. We know today the same is also promised. We may not have the biggest home or the nicest vehicle, whatever the case may be, but God will make sure, as we find in Matthew chapter 6, that all those things that we have need of, that He will provide for us. We have no reason to worry so long as we keep our faith and our trust in God. This evening, as you think about these things, and we can help you or encourage you in any way, you can come forward now. As we stand and sing the song that's been selected. My Jesus, bear the